Amen. Thank you, Willis. Thank you, worship team. And again, what a joy it is to be with you uh, this morning. Our family, I, I failed to mention this, once a month we'll have a family gathering where we uh, won't have our kids' classes. We have walkers and crawlers available. Uh, and so with that, kiddos, because I, I want to make sure I draw your attention into the goodness of God. If you're a kiddo in here, how old was Joshua when he passed away? Does anybody remember? Alexa? 110. Hey, wait, wait to listen. Good job. That was good. That was just a uh, low-hanging fruit. I, I just thought I'd, I'd uh, throw that out there and see. Uh, but this morning, y'all, we, as we kick off or continue uh, week four of our Judges series, we get somewhat, as Willis just read, somewhat of a second introduction to the entire book. And here's what I mean by that. Up until now, we've kind of seen the first, uh, the first intro play out, chapter one play out. Judges kicked off. If you think back, you can look back. Uh, we just are, are wrapping up chapter two, getting into chapter three. But chapter one kicks off remembering the death of Joshua. Like we got a glimpse uh, uh, looking at the life and leader that he was, that he was a great leader, faithful. He was courageous, uh, but he also was a leader who at 110, as Alexa just reminded us, passed away. Like their great, faithful, courageous leader had passed away and they turned, they being the Israelites, they turned to God. Just as Moses had done and had taught Joshua, and now Joshua had done, uh, when, when we don't know what to do, or in all things we turn to God, Joshua passes away and the Israelites do exactly as he uh, had taught them to do, to turn to God. Now, the question is, though, as they turn to God, will the Israelites remain faithful? Like, will they, the people, as, as you're going to see all throughout Judges, will the Israelites remain faithful? So, reading it on our end of things, it's clear, it's evident that they don't live a life of obedience. Instead, as I mentioned a few weeks and really every week, they live a life of half-hearted discipleship. They're just kind of in. They're on the fence. Like, oh yeah, we, we love God. We're thankful for all the things that he's done, but we're still going to live a life for us. So to be clear, their objective was to drive out the Canaanites, Joshua passes away, he teaches them to go to the Lord, they go to the Lord, the Lord gives them an answer, says, hey, this is what you're going to do, you're going to drive out the Canaanites. They were to take the land that God had set aside for them. God was very clear, take the land, leave no trace of false gods. Now the people, the Canaanites, who were living in the land were worshiping all sorts of false gods, idols that were terrible, and, and God, being a holy God, said, hey, we, we got to get those out. Like from the get-go, his holiness, it, for, for the Israelites to dwell in the land that God had set aside for his people, if that was going to happen, then there can't be any other sort of God. False idol, like get them out, drive them out. This is your land, I'm with you, and don't make compromises. It's kind of the, the Matt Weaver version of what the Lord is saying. Like they want to be all in, the, uh, the Israelites, they want to be all in, but things aren't quite as easy as they hoped for. God says one thing, and then they're met with, well, I can't do that. We saw that last week. God would say this, and they said, well, I can't. God said this, well, I can't. I can't do this. Iron chariots, or I, I can't do this. This is just too hard. And eventually their life begins to be marked with compromises. And as we see, and as we saw last week, those I can'ts turn into I won't. It's not just that I can't. It's that now I'm, I'm deliberately making this choice that I won't follow the ways of the Lord. 
which gets us to where we are this morning. It's kind of like this second introduction. The narrator doesn't forget that he's already introed everything. Instead, I think of it like a movie scene. If you find yourself watching this movie, you have the introduction, you're working your way through it, and then you kind of have this uh, pause in the movie where they look back. And that's kind of what the narrator does for us. One more time, he takes a, a glance back to remind us just how in-depth things were getting, were, were getting, and then how bad they would get. So you're in this present-day life, but now the scene takes a, a bit of a shift to recall something. He explained to us what took place when Joshua died, but now we get a little bit clearer insight as to how we got here. And he does it in a way that literally sets the stage. As Willis said uh, before he read the text, it sets the stage for the entire rest of the book. And here's what I mean. Take a look at the first few verses with me. We get another glimpse of the life and leadership of Joshua. We see this. The people worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime. That's how he led. Led them to the Lord. They worshiped God. And during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. So he had trained up. He had poured into faithful other elders, other leaders, and said, hey, this is who Yahweh is, the God of the Bible. This is who we worship. They had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. So these people, these men, women, had seen the faithfulness. They had seen their leaders be faithful to the Lord. Even if they weren't faithful, they saw genuine repentance where the leader would come back. They've seen God be faithful they knew of the faithfulness. They understood God's love for them. But a huge shift happens in verse 10 and 11. And we see this. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, that's key, after them, another generation rose up, hear this, who did not know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel. Now, what's the big deal here? Why does the narrator make this clear for his readers? Because after Joshua passes away, we see the next generation forget the gospel. This next generation forgets the faithfulness of God, forgets the promises of the Father. They don't remember how God delivered them and saved them. Now, I'm sure, how many parents have story time? Kiddos, you have story time at night? If you're 30 plus, and you still are raising your hand, that's great, too. You might call your parents, and they do story time with you. My dad was a phenomenal storyteller, but I'm sure they had story time with their children. Like these moms and dads, I'm sure they talked about the Red Sea, the great exodus. I'm sure they talked about the walls of, of Jericho falling. Like, I'm sure they talked about them, cool stories, but what do they have to do with us? It's kind of this next generation. Like, oh, that's cool, mom and dad. But it's 2023, and this, what does this have to do with me? It wasn't that they weren't talked about. It wasn't something they talked about or lived by, or if you think back to Deuteronomy with me. Here's what I mean by this. One story, God's word is one story, and all the way back in Deuteronomy, we see this. Listen, Israel. This is before the time that we're at right now in Judges. All right? Listen, Israel. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Let me back up. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. Our truth of the month, kiddos, everybody look up here. God is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your parents have those 
catechism cards, our 10 truths. Man, walk through that, parents, with your children. Teach them that God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. So listen to this. Still in Deuteronomy, repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your city gates. In other words, allow God to be a part of your everyday rhythms. Let your children see into your life. Why? Well, look at verse 10, Deuteronomy 6. I think it's on, yeah. When the Lord your God brings you into the land. Now, this is catching you up to where we are now. This is like this, a clear warning. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would give to you a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses. Now, I want you to hear this. Houses that houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Worship Him. Take your oaths in His name. Hear this. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. Clear warning to the people of Israel. From a caring, gentle, loving Father, holy God, a clear warning. It's, it's rather sad to look and to see all the warning signs. Like, we can read this. They recalled this. Generation after generation would recall this. Hey, remember, be careful not to forget the Lord. Remember that one generation is going to walk into the promised land and they're going to forget all of the things they didn't even work with their hands for this, but God's faithfulness provided for them. And sad that we see all these warning signs. We read this and we think, man, how much clearer can God be? And yet here we are. They've been handed the land and judges. And God just asks for all of their hearts. God just wants their full obedience. But now we see the effects of half-hearted obedience play out. Look with me. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshiped the Baals, abandoned their Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. This is like a, like, oh my gosh, as this is playing out, if they could only connect the dots. God clearly warned them. They abandoned the Lord the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples, and they bowed down to them. They angered the Lord. For they, I need you to hear this, not he, God did not, for they abandoned in him and worshiped Baal and Ashtoreths. They did what was evil. They turned their eyes from God and they placed their eyes in their hearts on lesser things of the world. They lived with the people that they were supposed to drive out, the ones who worshipped the gods of the land. 
Like that's what Baal means, just to be very clear. If you look at that in Scripture, it means Lord, but lowercase l, not uppercase Lord. It means Lord. And y'all, it didn't even take long, just one generation later, of seeing God's faithfulness over and over again. One generation later, we see them begin to worship and bow down to the idols of this land. Now, what's not clear here is who's responsible for this. I think that's fair to say. We don't know who's responsible for this. We're not sure if the older generation didn't teach them, like it didn't teach them well. We know, that, again, they, back to the story time. Like, I'm sure they talked about it. We don't know if the older generation just didn't pour into and teach the younger generation, or maybe, maybe the younger generation wanted nothing to do with it. We don't know that. I think it's a both and. I think both the older and the younger generation. Does any of this sound familiar to the culture we live in today? Like, I'm not for sure if it was the older or younger, but nonetheless, both were at fault here, and that seems to play into the cycle ahead. And here's what I mean. A generation who is committed to the Lord... Great is thy faithfulness. We love you, Lord. You are faithful. We're committed to you. Followed by a generation where complacency rules. Like, this generation's all in. This generation, complacency kind of sets in. Like, hey, we didn't work for this. Our cisterns are full and, and our land is full of, of all the things. We didn't work for this. So, I mean, that's kind of cool. Let's just get a little complacent. Sit back on our heels a little bit. And then ultimately that leads to a generation that's marked with compromise. Deliberately making the choice to say, ah, no thanks. So what does this have to do with you and I today? Psalm 145, verses 4 to 12, a, a bit paraphrased, but I want you to see this. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. They will give a testimony of your great goodness. They'll joyfully sing. All you have made will thank you, Lord. The faithful will bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom. They will declare your might, informing all people of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. The question then, I think, is what legacy are, are you leaving behind? This is what it has to do with you today. In 2023. Doesn't matter what generation. We can sit here and say, well, the, the boomers, we can sit here and say millennials, we can point fingers all we want, but it is a cyclical pattern. We're all at fault at this. And the question only you can control is what legacy will you leave behind? I mentioned this a few weeks ago, if you're here when we finished up parenting. What legacy will you leave behind? The greatest legacy you can leave behind is one of your presence. Fully present with your children, where you're present with them. You allow them to see your faith lived out. I don't want you to miss this. Psalm 145, why I read that is it's a lot of speaking. Declare, speak, praise, sing. It's beautiful. I love it. There's a lot of times where we just need to speak some truth into our children, into this younger generation. Inform them, thanking, blessing, speak. But right in the middle it says, they will give a testimony of your great goodness. Now, what does that mean? Give a testimony. 
It means they live their lives differently than the world and the culture around them. It means that mom and dad were present with their children. They were present with the father and therefore were able to be present with their children. Talking, yes, about the faithfulness of God, absolutely. Speaking of the glory of God, absolutely. But also, hear me, parents, living and giving testimony how you live of the goodness of God, yes and amen to more of that. And here's what I mean. Keller does a great job. He says this, we think that if we instruct our children in true doctrine, if we shelter them, it's going it's to hit home with a lot of us. We think that if we instruct our children in true doctrine, if we shelter them from immoral behavior, we just make them look good, keep them from all of the letters that are out there. And if we involve them in church and religious organizations, man, I was a youth minister for a long time. I don't know how many times parents dropped their kids off to church. I had multiple, I had way too many conversations where parents dropped their kids off to church and said, hey, you do, you know, do the thing. What does that mean? Well, you know, just, you know, disciple my kid. They've got questions about Jesus, you know. It's what we pay you to do. Over and over and over again. And here's where Keller's going with this. Involve them in church. We want to, in religious organizations, then we have done all we can. If that's what we do, we've done all we can. But our youth are turned off not only by bad examples, but also by parents who are not savvy about the lives and the world that their children are living in or who cannot be open about their own interior spiritual lives. Should the church disciple our children? Absolutely. If you show up to church, it depends on if, how long I preach for, but let's just say you give it an hour for math's sake. They, I got 52 hours. If you show up every time the church doors are open, 52 hours in a year, one hour a week. Now, I know the reality is, is we're good to hit two, maybe three times a month. So let's just say 38 hours out of an entire year, people will look at the church and say, hey, disciple our kids, please. And all along, kids are just saying, man, why do I want that when I don't see this lived out in the home? Why do you want me mom and dad, to, to look good like this and to have good morals when you're not doing it. Why? Is there an invitation for your children to have access to your presence? Are you faithfully passing your faith onto your children? Like, are you inviting them into the real gritty, hard conversations when you yourself don't even believe what you're saying. Oh, son, daughter, just have faith. When you yourself work for your salvation to try to earn favor from God, like invite them into what you wrestle with and what you struggle with. I, I can't promise this, but at 18, when they move off, there's a good chance if your faith is lived out on an every... I'm not asking you to be perfect, by all means. Matter of fact, let them into your sin and struggles with wisdom there, but if they leave the house at 18 and think mom and dad are perfect people, 
and all you've done is set this moralistic bar for them of just be a good person, why would they stick with the faith? Why would they keep going to church on Sundays? Why would they go to, at 18, move three hours from home and find a church to go to? Why? I never saw mom and dad live it out. But if you leave a legacy and there's an invitation for your children to have access to your presence, then just maybe what actually gets passed on is the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's tangible and they can see, yeah, mom, dad struggled a little bit. There's just some doubt there. But I saw mom and dad on their knees praying and asking for, asking for this healing, asking for this provision. We see this play out in our family. I see it play out in lots of families. I look out here and I'm just like, man, some of y'all might not be parents at the moment. Or some of you might be empty nesters. There is beautiful truth to living in community where my kids show up and they don't just hear mom and dad say, do this, don't do this, live like this. But they see Josh and Kim loving the Lord. They see the Spencers at school and in the hallways loving Jesus. They see Miss Dearman in her classroom and how much faith just, man, just goes out as she teaches. Like when they can show up and see men and women in this room struggling, wrestling through things, but walking out of here, not everything's perfect, not that you have it all figured out, but walking out of here like this, like, okay, Lord, man, I got faith. Whatever you want to do. When they see that, that is so much more powerful than anything that they can get outside of these walls. More than a coach telling them to be the best athlete is when men and women actually stand in the gap alongside parents and say, hey, let me tell you about, let me tell you about Jesus. Why don't you come sit with me today? Why don't you sing next to me? Inviting them in. If we work through... It's a lot up front, but if we work through the end of the chapter, we see the narrator, he kind of further explains a repeated cycle. We saw that with the generations, compromise. We're going to see that. There will be an image on the screen here, but this repeated cycle, it's in your book on page seven or it's on the screen behind me. I want to kind of walk through this because this is the next part of, of, of the entire sermon. Like this walks through the text. You see this over and over again, all right? So you have generation, God is, is faithful, then you have this next generation who becomes complacent, then you have this next generation who just compromises and says, man, I'm out. Like, I don't, I don't, even, I don't even want to fake it till I make it. I'm just out. So all throughout Judges, we see this. Israel rebels. Start up there in the top right. The people stop serving God. They become more and more like the people of the land, and they worship the gods of the land. All of the idols. So Israel rebels. What happens next? Well, God steps in. He intervenes. He punishes Israel. He's angry. He's angry at the choice of his people that they have made, and rightfully so. He hands them over to their enemies. He's faithful still, but he hands them over. And what happens? Well, as he punishes Israel, they suffer greatly. They're suffering, the irony here, they're suffering at the hands of the gods in which they had chosen to serve. Drive them out. Well, it's easier. It's, just, it's easier to keep them here. So then they start worshiping the idols. Idolatry always leads to slavery. Just throw that out there real quick. Idolatry will always lead you to slavery. Next phase of the cycle, Israel cries out to God. They pray for help. God, where are you? Help us in our time of need. What do we do? 
Oh, yes. Remember the faithfulness. I remember that bedtime story, the faithfulness. Yeah, I remember the faithfulness of God. He'll never leave us. What happens? God has mercy. He points a judge. He's a holy God. He cannot stand with anything that is unholy, but he's also a faithful and loving God. We see that in chapter, chapter 2, verse 18. Whenever the Lord raises up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting him. So he hears the cries of his people, and he raises up a specific person known as what? What does he raise up? What's the name of our book that we're studying? We're in Judges. He raises up a judge. That was not a trick question. <laughs> I felt that one going a little bit different. Uh, he raises up a specific person. It's known as a judge. God places his spirit on this person. So let's think less black robe and, and gavel. Instead, these were men and women that we're going to see who stepped into literally a raging war in order to help lead and deliver the people from their enemies. Some were all right. We're going to see some decent examples. And then we're going to see some very terrible ones throughout the rest of this book. But nonetheless, these judges would rule for a season and then they'd totally blow it. So the judge, as you can see, the next, the judge delivers Israel. He leads them to defeat their enemies, the same enemy they willingly allowed to live in their land with. And for a time, peace is restored. And if you see, whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly. It's a cycle that gets worse and worse. The Israelites would act even more corruptly than their ancestors, following other gods to serve them and to bow and worship to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or obstinate ways. They became complacent and they repeat the cycle over and over again. Now, I noted this back in chapter, through, chapter 2. The narrator says, talks about the thorns and the snares of the idols. The thorns of these idols will go deeper and deeper every time. The snares of the gods of this land will become harsher and harsher. The rebellion of God's people will get worse. With their rebellion getting worse, the oppression gets heavier. The repentance, God, we love you, gets weaker and weaker. The judges continue to become weak and more flawed over time. But it's how God chose to discipline and grow his people, even in all of the mess that these people created. He remains faithful, true to his word, kind and compassionate, loving. This entire book stands as this constant reminder of our need for a better judge. Like it points to our need for a savior. And now, being on this side of the cross, we have access to all of him. And his name is Jesus. That's the gospel, the good news of who he is, is that he's the better judge that any of these men and women could ever have done. He's the better Moses. He's the better Joshua. He's the better Adam in the garden. He's the better David. He didn't just slay one Goliath. He slayed an entire principalities of evil and darkness. He walked out of the grave 
and his name is Jesus. And being on this side, we have access to all of him. But even on this side of the cross, hear me this morning, we don't find ourselves living too far off from how the Israelites were living amongst the idols of the land. You know what the scripture says about Jesus. We're on this side. You know the hope. You've probably experienced, if you're a believer in here, you've experienced from death to life. You feel it. You want it. You desire it. Look at verse 17 with me. I told you last week throughout this series, we're just going to unpack some idols over the time. Verse 17, but they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. Now, I realize we're in a family gathering, so I'm not going to get into that particular word, but I do want us to see what happens when we bow down to other idols. Like That's a strong word to use here. It shows us that when we serve an idol, that we are entering into an intense relationship with it. Hey, that idol doesn't care about you at all. It just wants to use you. And in that process, we become totally enslaved. I told you, idolatry will always end to slavery. Enslaved to this. And here's the interesting part. You know what the Israelites were doing before they went all in on bowing down to these gods and worshiping these other idols? They were just living amongst the Canaanites. It doesn't sound bad. That, that little compromise doesn't sound that bad. It made sense. Yeah, we just keep them around. God said, drive them out. And they just said, it's going to be all right. They compromised. It's really not that big of a deal. Can I just tell you that the enemy that you and I fight is not each other, but it's the father of lies who's the great deceiver. Idols are seductive. They will always overpromise and underdeliver. Every time. They come to you and say, hey, I know how to numb that pain. You just run to me. I know what you really need. And idolatry ends up being voluntary slavery, and it blinds us to God's love and all of his faithfulness. We can't see the freedom we have in Jesus because our eyes are chasing the things of this world. I don't know if anybody y'all, anybody ever watched, um, sorry, I was looking at the time. I got a little bit more left. Um, Anybody watch the documentary about Florida Swamp Fans or Swamp Kings? Is that what it's called? Swamp People? On Netflix. It's a great documentary. You should watch it, okay? Uh, and then I also watched one on Johnny Manziel this last week. Just wild to see this. I watched it, and I watched uh, both Urban Meyer uh, talks a little bit about how he won his second national championship, and within 10 minutes, he locked himself in his office he was on the phone with future recruits because all he could think about was the next one. He couldn't even stop to celebrate. He couldn't even stop. And, and at the end of the documentary, he talks about how, man, it just left him like just wanting more. Like this, it's never going to be enough. And then I watched the one on Johnny Manziel. The great theologian, Johnny Football, said this. I had every single thing that I could have ever wanted. And when I got everything that I wanted, I think I was the most empty that I've ever felt inside. That is idolatry 101. From straight out of scripture, 
I don't know where he stands with the Lord, but that is what chasing and bowing down to idols will do. Always leaving you wanting more, never fulfilling you. And it will lead to slavery. The reason the cycles get harsher and harsher is this. God said, drive them out. And the Israelites just kept flirting with them. We look up, we see this sense of, of paganism taking place in the hearts of God's people, meaning despite God's faithfulness to them, they were turning to the idols of the land, flirting with them. And hear me, all while still acknowledging the God of the Bible. Timothy Keller says, the greatest danger because it is such a subtle temptation which enables us to continue as church members and feel that nothing is wrong is not that we become atheists, but that we ask God to coexist with the idols in our hearts. Over time, flirting turned into a lifestyle of going all in on worshiping the bales of the land. And it got worse and worse, sexual immorality, literally, y'all, child sacrifice, body mutilation, it, it gets dark. They just left the door barely cracked. Compromise after compromise. 400 and something years go by of just cycle after cycle, half-hearted discipleship over and over again. So what does this mean for us? I'll wrap this up. I think some of us hear this and think, man, what idols I don't bow down to a golden calf. I don't, I'm not bowing down to any other God. Well, Martin Luther says behind every sin is an idol. Behind every idol is a disbelief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this disbelief is that we need something more than God has to offer. So let me break that down. We weren't created to worship. We were created worshiping. Proverbs 4 says everything in your life flows from your heart. Matthew 6, Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that means that what you treasure, what you love and desire is what you worship. There's not an on-off switch of that either. Everything in your life is continually flowing from your heart. You weren't created to worship. You were created a worshiper. Meaning, every one of us are always worshiping. Everything we do is worship. The question is, what am I worshiping? It's not, am I? It's, what are you worshiping? The scriptures are clear. Over and over again, we see that when we're not worshiping God, then you're worshiping something else. That's called an idol. And we're an idolatrous people. Anything that rules your heart other than God is idolatry. Anything you seek to give you what you can only get out of God, idolatry. Whatever you look at and say in your heart, hey, if I have that, then my feelings I feel my life has meaning. Then if I have that, I'll have value. Then I'll feel significant. Now, if I get to this point in my life, then I will feel secure. Could be love, could be sex, money, power, success, approval, control, comfort. Whatever it is, it's here that we have exchanged this truth for a lie. We are worshiping creation instead of our creator, and that becomes a sin heartbreaking, especially in light of all that God has done. We're on this side of an empty tomb. Thank you, Father, for your mercy. I'm still going to bow down to the idols of my heart. It's stealing what rightly belongs to God and loving something else more than him. But here's the, 
here's the deal, all, all of us, every one of us, your kids, I know you would amen this, they have a worship problem. You, as an adult, have a worship problem because we're both a worshiper and a sinner. The problem is, is that we find ourselves quite often turning to worship that which is undeserving of our worship. Paul Tripp says, sin is much more than doing the wrong thing. It begins with loving, worshiping, and serving the wrong thing. So I want you to hear this. You didn't stumble your way into that sin. My youth, look at me. Struggling with all sorts of stuff, maybe identity things, anxiety, maybe even, maybe even depression. You didn't stumble your way into that sin. You didn't fall into it. Adults, we worshiped ourselves into that. You desired something. I desire something greater than God. I worshiped myself into that sin. You know how you get out of it? You worship your way out. I can give you a, a book. Somebody gave me a book one time. It was 99 Ways to Better Your Life. And I thought, dude, I can't even do three things. Why are you telling me 99 ways that God wants to better my life? Here's what I have for you. You don't stumble your way into sin. You worship your way. There's something in your heart that says you need this more than God. To get out of that, you worship your way out. I don't know what that needs to look like for you today. I don't know where you're at. I don't even know if you truly understand that, that the idolatry we have in our heart is literally us on our hands and on our face worshiping approval. Man, if, if people at work will just think that I, I make this, I, I mean, to the point, if it's approval, you probably even tell just half lies. How much do you make? I don't know, $50,000. Maybe you only make thirty-five, dollars but it's just that, that little, why? So people will approve you? You tell Ellie all the time as a middle school daughter, like, who, what does it matter if your friends say this or if other girls say this? Like, it's easier for me to, to say that. But that, isn't that how we all live? Like if people just approve of us, look at us, the cars we drive, the things that we do, man, we just have arrived at this part in our life. Why? So people can approve us for comfort, for control. I don't know what it is in your life, but you're bowing down to something. Every day we are worshiping something. What are you worshiping? Lord, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for being there for us. Lord, thank you that your word is alive. Thank you that even in the midst of us bowing down and worshiping the idols of our heart, that you pursue our hearts, you lift our eyes. You don't cast us out in those times. You lift our eyes to a better, true idol, the one idol who actually laid down his life for us. Lord, why do we over and over again lay our lives down for something that would never lay its life down for us? Goodness, we chase things, approval and comfort and sex and, and all of the things that this world says that you've created. But when that becomes what rules our heart, we're worshiping creation and not you. Lord, I think 
those things are a beautiful thing. I think there is something to comfort. I think there is something to your beautiful sexual design and how you've, you've made things beautiful. Lord, but the world and the enemy distorts that over and over again and says, well, if you have it this way, then you'll feel fulfilled. And we, we go all in. I just want to feel validated. I just want to be approved. I just want to find comfort. I just want to escape this. So we go all in and we bow down. And all along, Lord, you're whispering, saying, hey, I'm here. I've never left you. Those things will never give, lay down their life for you. But Matt, I laid my life down for you. So Lord, whatever that needs to take place and look like this morning, would you just draw our eyes and our hearts to you that we would learn to fight the sin of, of worshiping other idols with the gospel, the good news of you. Lord, there's going to be a lot to unpack over the next few months. Would just be with us. Pray that nobody walks out of here just beat up thinking, man, I'm just not good enough. Lord, would you lift their eyes to you? We can never out your grace. There's hope for every person in this room this morning. Hear the good news and then respond to it. And we do this, why, Lord? As we look at chapter three, we do this so that we can teach future generations how to fight and battle. This was to teach the future generations of the Israelites how to fight and battle, especially those who had not fought before. God, if there's somebody who's never fought the lies of the enemy, who's never actually laid their life down for you, Lord, would you walk into that with them today? They experience your grace, and then, Lord, would you give them courage to fight the eyes, uh, uh, fight a battle that you've already won? We need you, Lord. We need you to move in a mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen.